Hello everyone, this is Katie and this is our second self-care as social action podcast and I just want to say before we kind of get into today how appreciative I am of the messages and Facebook messages I receive from people, some that I don't even know, who not only listened and were encouraged, but immediately started sending me ideas of other people to reach out to, um, other people locally who were doing really cool things. And I I was so humbled and so excited because that's exactly the point. Um, Some of the other feedback I got was... uh, don't forget a lot of us aren't in social services so just the vernacular uh, I might need to take a hot second and and I wanted to kind of explain just some of the vocabulary around what we'll be talking about today and, and moving forward so some of that is related to how I even got into this work and while I won't bore you with my whole you know bio I will say that I am a clinician who spends more time with systems that Uh, try to work with and support really vulnerable kiddos and families than I do any more actually providing individual therapeutic services to kiddos or families. Um, I'm currently the mental health consultant for child welfare and that is how I got the great joy of meeting our guest today, Dr. Deborah Shropshire. And Deb, Dr. Deb as we call her, (laughs) um, is the person who got me to the table um, at the resiliency forum that I mentioned in the previous broadcast, getting to go to the dinner uh, and actually meet Dr. Andes. So that is just one example of how um, our connection has been a part of what has led to me wanting to do this podcast. And while today's conversation will be kind of around the ideas of what, what kind of inspired her. She, I love Deb because she refers to herself as a pediatrician who doesn't necessarily really like kids. And I'm like, I'm a therapist who doesn't really always like people. And, um, and yet she is just a gift to not just this agency, but um, kiddos and families in general, and not just in Oklahoma. And I felt like uh, visiting with her today on this podcast would be a nice segue from those more kind of ephemeral ideas about what it means to take social action as a form of self-care and really as we move forward into talking to individuals who do that not under the auspices of a career or profession but more just their personal values being put into action I thought maybe Deb and I today visiting about what that kind of looks like and where she got inspired to be a medical professional who ended up being um, a social worker. <laughs> so, Deb, I am going to ask you to um, kind of give your your name, title, what you do, and um, then I'm going to practice. You'll be my initial um, interviewer, interviewee. So, yeah, here we go. At least I won't hit myself in the face with my <laughs> phone like I did on the first podcast. <laughs> so, that was awesome. Uh, well, Katie, thanks for having me. I'm honored to be um, part of this. I just think this is going to be a uh, really meaningful uh, conversation over a period of time that that you're going to bring um, to, I'm not sure to who will be on the other end, but uh, but I think there's clearly a, uh, a space for this conversation around um, how 
kind of everyday people um, can both engage in serving kind of their fellow man, and then right. and how does that how does that change our communities, and how does it change the outcomes of, of the way even our state or our country look um, when we are willing to do that? Um, my name is Deb, and I am a pediatrician that wasn't planning to be a pediatrician. <laughs> uh, I wanted to be an ER doctor from the time I was a little kid. Um, they say in medicine that about twenty five percent of all people who become physicians figured out when they were a child that that's what they wanted to do and for and that a lot of times that's associated with a family medical crisis or something that oh, as wow. a child you walk through and I can remember being in the emergency room with my granddad when he was when I was like seven and him having a heart attack and and being fascinated by what was happening in the emergency room but also uh, wondering you know well I want to help people he's sick and they're helping him and I want to help people and so I always thought I'd be an ER doctor and then I, um, and so I thought, I like broken bones and bruises and <laughs> bleeding and all that kind of stuff. And it wasn't until I ran into the uh, space of kind of foster care and uh, child abuse, child maltreatment, that I understood there's more than one way to be broken. Mm. And, um, and through some experiences I had during my medical training, working with kids, but also with their families who I absolutely fell in love with and all my colleagues would say why do you why do you are you interested in the biological family because this horrible thing has happened but I looked at them and I thought they don't look that much different than me if my life had been a little bit different right. or if I had made some different decisions right. along the way I could be in their shoes and the foster families I also fell in love with because they uh, took extra kids to their house, which I always thought was fascinating because, um, you know, like, uh, I just think it's a really big ask to say to someone, not only raise your own family, but take on extra kids when you don't know uh, what's going to happen. You get a phone call and all Absolutely. of a sudden, here are these kids and you don't know what they've experienced. I always tell when I do my foster parent training, I always lead with just know coming in I already think you're a better person than me <laughs> like I just feel like yeah. if I've done my job well I meet my children for coffee on Saturdays like <laughs> they're paying their own rent we have these great and then I'm out and like I'm raising you know autonomous adults and this idea that people just bring in really hurt scared yeah. kiddos who might speak with their behavior and sometimes really scary uh, in often even violent ways is just amazing to me. I, I always say you're definitely better than me. I'm leaving at five and you're going to leave here and go make dinner for children you didn't give birth to and don't quite know their backstory and, and, or if they'll kick your dog on the way to bed tonight. Like that's amazing to me. It is. And the best examples of uh, foster families that I have had the opportunity to interact with not only fell in love with kids that they took in, but also with those children, the parents of those oh, children. That's amazing. And, and I've watched, it doesn't always work this way, but i watched uh, foster families really expand uh, their family in a broader way than just with, with their interactions with their children. And so I fell in love with that group. But I also fell in love with uh, the system that's trying to take care of these kids. And so I had an experience uh, where I went to court and was watching a court hearing, a, what we would call permanency hearing, where there's it's just a checkup kind of court hearing in a foster care case to say, are the parents doing what they're supposed to and all these different things. But I didn't understand that at the time. I was a medical student. I'd never even been in a courtroom before. And I'm sitting in the back of this court with all these people, and it's hot, it's 100 degrees in there, and the judge is there on their judge's throne, <laughs> 
And all these people are surrounding the judge or in front of the judge. And I know now, looking back, those were attorneys and they were the parents, right. the district attorney, all these people. But the question the judge asked was, where are the children and how are they doing? And no one in that group could answer the question. And they all started thumbing through files and there was no answer. And I know, again, looking back, I understand mm. now that probably wasn't the actual caseworker. It was probably some court liaison who was covering. And it was the DA at that time, I think our DAs had 600 cases. Of course, they didn't know the details of every case. But I remember sitting in the back of the room and just becoming sick to my stomach with the idea that this system of really good people, yeah. social workers and attorneys and police right. officers, trying to, trying to ensure kids were safe, trying to wrap services around families, um, was unable to answer in that moment the simple question, where are the children and right. how are they doing? And I remember leaving the courtroom um, and just being sick. And, and I just, after that, those experiences, I just never slept as well <laughs> after that. And I knew I wanted to figure out how I could help. I didn't know what that looked like, but I wanted to know how I could help. And I had mentors along the way who said, well, if you're going to be a medicine and you're going to help kids that are in foster care, you need to be a pediatrician. I called my mom. I'll never forget. And I said, <laughs> Who was uh, a school teacher, which I love. <laughs> I called my mom and I said, uh, I think I'm going to be a pediatrician. I was already in medical school. I was already well on my way to being an ER doctor. And I said, I think I'm going to change my mind and be a pediatrician. And she said, you don't like children very much. <laughs> I said, I know, mom, but I really like these kids. And I really feel like I have something to contribute in that field. And so away we went. I love it. <laughs> so if I were to ask you, what are like the top two values that really led to that epiphany just for you personally that changed your professional trajectory what first two values kind of come to mind then Deb? I think for sure the idea that we are um, on the planet for some kind of purpose um, and really that in me to me that's kind of a broad thing in the sense that we're, we're meant to serve hmm. and so coming at this work from a servant's heart um, and a perspective of how can I serve uh, allowed the door to be open when I ran into something that struck me. And I think a lot of times we run into things that are uncomfortable or that bother us, keep us awake at night. And a lot of times what we tend to do is say, how can I do less of that? Because I want to sleep. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I had some, uh, some great mentors and I think also the value system that said when you see something that, that seems wrong to you, especially when other people aren't seeing it, but it sort of seems out of proportion, like it's bothering you, you should actually run toward that uh, because that maybe is the space that you're supposed to serve in. And so when I ran into that issue of kids in foster care and the systems trying to take care of them um, and I got uncomfortable, um, the idea of maybe that's where I'm supposed to serve was a pretty natural one for me. I love that. And I remember the in kind of trying to prepare the kind of the language or vocabulary list for this, I, I looked up actual definitions because we say these kind of terms all the time and I died laughing that the moment, the first definition of self-care I looked up um, was something about, you know, avoiding things that make you uncomfortable and I died laughing. I'm like, absolutely the antithesis of that. That's called avoidance in our world. Like, that, is, that does not end well. Like, yeah. and. So then subsequent definitions around self-care were about ways of finding um, 
the ability to find congruency with both physical and mental fitness. Mm -hmm. And that to me resonated with those ideas about resiliency. You know, that idea, you're not born necessarily, anybody can develop resiliency skills. And those are things that become that kind of that um, violin string, even if it doesn't ever, you know, it stretches out, it might not ever go all the way back to its original shape, but it can still make beautiful music and right. it can get pretty darn close and maybe make something even more lovely. Right. And that resiliency is that ability to develop a way of facing adversities and and finding a way through them, not maybe around them. And how do I find a way to be a part of a community and, and be a part of that conversation? How do I bring healing or wholeness, um, not because it's my job, but because I live in this community and I can avoid it and keep my kids locked in the house and only watch one kind of news or hang out with one type of person, or I can be uncomfortable and take a deep breath and open the door and go, all right, here we go, and be teachable. Right. I, I love that you didn't ever intend to kind of go down this path. I didn't, but I think to your, uh, to your point, it's important. The concept of resiliency doesn't just, or of running towards things that are, or going towards things that are uncomfortable, doesn't just connect with people who've gone through a lot of adversity, but it's important for Very those true. of us who haven't maybe gone through a lot of adversity to also be willing to do that. It's just part <laughs> of being an authentic, vulnerable human being. And, um, and so whether we've uh, faced a lot of adversity in our lives or we haven't really, you still have to make a choice about when I run into something hard, whether it's um, personally hard right. or whether it's hard because it's against sort of the value system I grew up under or whether it's hard because I see the impact on my community, am I willing to move toward it or am I going to run away from it? And so I think it's really important, regardless of someone's own personal kind of you know, childhood or their own sort of level of adversity maybe that they face in their own personal life, it's really, really important for us all to say resilience um, isn't just kind of overcoming adversity. It's also just a manner of doing business. I love that. Doing life Absolutely. In a way that we say, I'm not going to shy away from hard things. I'm going to go towards this if I feel like I have something to contribute. And, um, and to me, for me, that was being willing to give up this sort of dream and this story I'd had in my head since I was seven years old of being an ER doctor. Right. And move toward pediatrics, which was very unfamiliar. And then not just pediatrics, because honestly, most of the work I do now isn't medicine at all. It's actually in uh, the social work field more with child welfare workers. And so moving, uh, you know, into some spaces that were way less comfortable <laughs> and way um, where I'm sort of a little bit of a zebra, but because I continue to just run towards this thing that keeps me up at night, that has kept me up at night now for 20 plus years, um, which is this idea that, um, that kids shouldn't be mistreated and that in general their parents don't mean to do that, and, but maybe they don't know any other way to do things. And we, if we did this right in a generation, if we did our work right, that we could actually in another generation not have children mistreated. Ugh. So trying to figure out, like, what's my part of well, trying to and make that happen. I got to tell you, the irony of us having this conversation today when tens of thousands of Oklahomans are literally right outside the door, um, regardless of their political affiliation, standing behind Oklahoma educators yeah. saying this is an important conversation and we're going to, by golly, um, <laughs> 
kind of stampede the Capitol today and rally for some honest conversation around what it means to stand together and fund educators so they can fund their classrooms um, without it being from their own tiny little pocketbook that isn't sufficient. What are we, like 49th, I think they said? Something like that. It's heinous. But it could just take one generation, one voting cycle, <clears throat> excuse me, to really immediately kind of shift that conversation, not just the funding of that, but this kind of shared understanding that we let other people tell us that that conversation was affiliated to a party. And when the, the truth is we all have kids that we care about, whether they're our own or our neighbors or our friends, and the quality of our communities is contingent on the degree to which they get access to good good information and and quality educators and they deserve to be compensated our kids spend more time there than they do anywhere else all day long and it took us a while to figure out oh we don't have to be combative on that issue so i'm hopeful i i think that that is a similar conversation about this and although i know that child welfare kind of stole you away from the medical field a bit and brought you in because uh, kudos to child welfare for having this kind of (laughs) um, can you tell we're in an office as we do this (laughs) I love that child welfare had the idea to think outside the box on those sort of bureaucratic paradigms that we tell ourselves you can only do these things this way um I, I think that, I mean, I sure wouldn't be here if it weren't for a grant, and you're here because of this kind of unique role. All of those things are exciting. I do want to ask you this, um, not to be Debbie Downer, but I am curious because it would be disingenuous not to also kind of surface the other side of of this conversation, which is what has it cost you or what has... Okay, (laughs) once again, I'm asking people to bear with my technology learning curve here. I think by the time Deb noticed that we weren't recording, I was smack dab in the middle of asking what might some of those unexpected barriers have been that you maybe ran into, if any, um, when you kind of started moving forward. And and it was taking kind of action on your own personal values, but it it is... um, the self-care of that to me is that that's what felt felt right in your kind of spirit but where did you get kind of knocked a bit and as you ran towards all that awesome discomfort yeah so I think um there have been you know several ways in which uh the moving toward this thing that I felt drawn toward it was very uncomfortable one of which was uh, the more I moved into working with kids that were in foster care or had experienced child abuse or those kinds of things, uh, that was something that most of my pediatric colleagues were actually uncomfortable with. They didn't want to do it. Hmm. It was a hard subject for folks. And so they were glad to let me have it. That's the upside. The downside, <laughs> knock yourself out, Deb. <laughs> yeah, knock yourself out. You can have all these. The downside was I didn't have a lot of colleagues. So I didn't have a lot of peers. To, you know, right. if I saw a kid that really disturbed me or a situation that really bothered me and I needed somebody to download with, I didn't really have uh, a lot of folks who understood what I was talking about. And, you know, for a lot of years, I took care of the medical needs of kids in a shelter, just thousands and thousands of them. And for whatever reason, every once in a while, you know, some of those kids or those stories would really, really disturb me. And there wasn't a peer group. 
to sort of go back to. There wasn't yeah. anybody who was doing that in my state. And so I had to look broader into across, you know, pediatricians who are in other states. And then I had to sort of think, okay, well, maybe not pediatricians. What are, who are other kinds of people who are doing this work that can kind of serve as my peer group? So my peer group got broader, and that was a plus. Um, and it's probably how ultimately I wound up in child welfare because I began to interact really with, I, I started saying, well, who works with foster kids? Well, let me find those people because they'll understand what I'm worried about and they'll understand what's keeping me up at night and they'll understand, right. you know, and that's how I became friends with people who at the time we just started working on some things together and eventually those people became the leadership of child welfare and it was through some of those relationships and experiences that I got the opportunity to come to child welfare and do mostly not medical things, but in fact to do um, a lot of work within child welfare around um, helping the system change and bringing a, a different perspective maybe than folks who'd kind of grown up in it. And so, so there was some cost in not quite fitting in with my peer group. That cost continues to carry forward because I still don't have a peer group. Right. I mean, I'm a pediatrician in a child welfare agency. Who's now Deputy Commissioner of yep. Community Partnerships. Yep, I'm a Deputy Director um, in Child Welfare. Oh, sorry, I, I said that wrong, sorry, yeah. I have Community Partnerships, but nobody knows what that is because it didn't exist <laughs> right. before it was that. And so the person who uh, uh, hired me said, we'll just, we'll make it up. We just know we need better uh, connections with the community. And then since I came, um, I'm kind of an opportunist. And so I've just wound up with um, a lot of different opportunities to take on um, different work that we have. And so I now have a responsibility for our business process team and our data team and all these teams that are really not really connected to community partnerships at all, but it's part of me as serving as a deputy director and saying, what can I do to help strengthen this agency and this division of child welfare in Oklahoma? And how can I bring my talents, even though right. my degree looks one way, but, but what, what else can I do to help? Well, and I, that for me is going to be the beauty of all the subsequent conversations we get to have with people who are doing that, being willing to kind of step outside their own profession or job description and certainly their comfort zone and just think, how, how if that does not sit well with me, what compels me to take action on that how does that feel even the yucky stuff even the the friendships that get kind of wonky at some point as I know to the people that I'll be talking with in the next two weeks that was their experience and and that may be people's faith communities or their own families and yet they find a way to engage and have empathy for another perspective kind of like you mentioned earlier just that ability to find where we share some value um, and we're just willing to stand in that awkward gap together yeah. and not make it all about us I always think as if I'm a as a clinician I do the best job possible when I I let kiddos communicate what they need via their behavior or statements and I don't take it so personally right. that I don't make their experience all about my reaction right. to it and in a system, that parallel process can get really, we don't, I don't always recognize it until I'm smack dab in the middle of being complicit in messing it all up and I have to have really good colleagues to call me out on that and, and take a deep breath and go, Ugh, I am the thing that's wrong today because I, <laughs> I need to take a step back. And Dr. Um, Bloom, Sandra Bloom was the first person who ever explained any of that to me, the idea of, 
of how systems that are set up to serve kiddos and families who are really struggling, often the very systems that are set up to serve them take on some of those similar characteristics and we kind of get trauma yeah. organized unwittingly. And then if we're not careful, we become kind of complicit in perpetuating those really marginalizing and embarrassing, humiliating, not helpful, anti-therapeutic experiences, which is not what anybody gets up in the morning and gets dressed to go walk out the front door and go do. But not talking about it or avoiding those conversations really just makes it kind of go on and on. And and then we're, we don't feel good. I know in our field, social services, we are overrepresented in all 10 Mm-hmm. of the ACEs category, those adverse childhood experience, mm-hmm. all 10, whether they're abuse, neglect, household dysfunction, social services is more represented than the basic kind of uh, human population. And that puts us at risk if we're not a little bit more thoughtful, a little bit more mindful. Sometimes I think the people I'll be interviewing um, who are not in social services um, are a little bit more like the people, not to say, I mean, I have no idea what their ACE score is, but whatever it is, they certainly have um, equal and higher resiliency scores. Like they're out there doing um, and making the world better. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be, to me, I think that exciting conversation. Well, it is. And I think it's really important to uh, to figure out what what works in terms of resiliency so early on, when I first understood the ACE, the idea of the adverse childhood experiences and the idea that what happens in childhood dramatically affects you into adulthood, that was sort of common sense. Like, the study helped me put language to it, mm. but all of us kind of get that, that we can point back to our childhood and different things, good, bad, whatever, and how they influenced us. So it doesn't, it's not a big sort of shocker to say, if yours was rough, you might have a rough adulthood. But this gave sort of the language to it. But I think the better question is not, well, what happened then and now is that going to paint a picture of me going forward? But actually to say, who, what, what happened to, to people, like if there were people who had a significant amount of adversity in their childhood um, and they're successful in their adulthood, how do I get kids right there? Right. And I, for me personally, I didn't have a lot of adversity in my childhood, not as, as it relates to the ACE study, but I saw these children who did and if I just sort of gave up and said, well, sorry for you, your life is likely to stink, <laughs> that was not satisfying right. to me as someone right. who's trying to serve these kids. I wanted to know, how do I get you from the adversity you've already faced that I can't get backwards and do anything about? But now that I have you in front of me, how can I help you uh, potentially become a more healthy um, adult? Yes. So what are the characteristics of the people who had that adversity, but now they're healthy and now they're serving? And now they're doing all kinds of really cool things. And I think uh, over the course of the conversations you get to have on this uh, on this podcast, I hope that one of the things that you'll uncover are some people who, who will say, man, I had a pretty rough childhood, but here's how it's playing out in a successful adulthood because we Absolutely. need to understand that. Yeah. And then we need more of that, <laughs> of those kinds of opportunities for kids. One of the other things that I – you were, back to your question about cost – one of the things that I uh, kind of had a mind shift, you know, so much of this work is about how we actually think about things. It's not actually what's going on. Right. It's actually how do we think about it. So one of the mind shifts for me was in being less focused on what it cost, what it cost me personally or 
what it costs to do this work or all the missed opportunities. And I'd say that with air quotes because, <laughs> you know, I get these things in the mail uh, that are like these, we call them headhunter, uh, you know, advertisements that say you can be a pediatrician and a lovely community that has a lake and mountains and you can make all this money. And sometimes I get, if on my bad days I get those <laughs> and I look at them and I think I can do that. And you can work four days a week and play golf on the fifth day. And it's just not my life, you know, but I could, but I look and I think I'm qualified. I could be this. Um, that's all my bad days. Um, but the truth is the mind shift for me a long time ago was not asking the question, um, you know, what's the cost to me personally to engage in this professionally to engage in this, um, for my family, who's been incredibly supportive of me as I've engaged in working um, with kids in foster care and around child welfare. But actually, what's it worth? So what kind of a, mm. what size of a check would I write, for example, to make sure that a kid who's in front of me in my clinic or in front of me at the shelter had a family at the end of today? What kind of check would I write? What kind of check would I write? Um, what kind of resources would I gather up to ensure that I knew this kid who walked in the door thinking this was all their fault or that they didn't have any value, they didn't have any purpose, that if they walked out the door uh, that they actually understood they were worth being loved, they were worth, ha they had value, they had a purpose, they had something to look forward to instead of just, um, you know, existing. What kind of, um, what kind of, what's the dollar amount for that? And I had to sort of wrestle with the idea that if it was my kid, hmm. I'd give everything. Right. So then was I willing to say that for these kids too, that I'd give everything to have a, a kid come out the other side of an interaction with me? Um, for not so no, much no. what does that cost you, how much is that worth? How much is it worth? I love that shift. By shifting that, wow. yeah. the cost looks an awful lot smaller yeah. than it did when I was actually, you know, I feel like I went from sort of counting pennies on the cost to say in blank check like with lot with my life and my time and my energy and my resources and obviously we all have our limits I'm not saying we don't but I'm just saying um, I think if we would shift towards thinking about what would it what's it worth to me to see a family a child yeah you know a foster family supported like families come out on the other end of the system in better shape than when we found them um, what is that worth? It's a very different question. It's a much bigger, I have much more room for generosity in that question than I do if I'm worried about uh, being being sure that I have enough. It's sort of going from a scarcity, poverty. Uh, yeah, and I have to, I, oh, there's only enough. Brene Brown talks about this idea of like uh, going from that mentality to there is really enough for us to, whether it's love people, you know, uh, relate to people, uh, have vulnerability with people. It's not a limit. It's right. not limited. It's just it's time. Uh, right, <laughs> right. It's it just, just it just spreads. Being willing. Oh, and that's why I love you. Thank you <laughs> for articulating that beautiful kind of human condition piece that we do all have. We just maybe I'll speak for myself. I forget to access it sometimes because it's underneath. All those foreign Netflix shows I alluded to <laughs> binge watching <laughs> last time. Um, that, oh, I love you. Thank you. You're and very welcome. that is the framework that I do want to have moving forward. I, I will probably still struggle with interviewing. I'm fine tuning my questions, and clearly I still suck at figuring out the recording part. But this, that conversation around that framework, that mentality moving forward, 
that is the gold in what I think is, is so beautiful about this idea of connecting people um, in that way. So thank you so much, Dr. Deb, oh, for doing you this. For and you're awesome. <laughs> Folks, I'm, again, not going to listen to this because um, I'm afraid I won't hit publish, but I'm ever and always a work in progress, and I've got a list of questions I'm sending to the app people so I can figure out some of these tech things. So thanks for being patient and Deb was worth it. And we will talk to you. I will talk to you next week.